This month, um, we've been looking at <clears throat> some family matters or family relationships through the lens of the wisdom of Proverbs. And one of the points that I have um, tried to emphasize, tried to repeat throughout this study is that for those who are in Christ, um, you can change the, the entire trajectory of your family tree with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let me just quote myself from a couple of weeks ago. Um, I said this, I want to be sure to acknowledge that most of us in this room have a disordered family in one sense or another. In our families, maybe our immediate family, maybe our extended family, but in our families, we have divorce, single parenthood, broken or blended families. We have family members in jail or addicted to one substance or another. Some of us have abuse in our backgrounds, some physical, some sexual, some verbal. Still others here at this church come from a long line of faithful Christians, while others of us are, are first or second generation Christians. Yet we all carry a variety of baggage of one sort or another into our own families and, and yeah, even into the church. And we are grateful that Christ redeems. But as I said, if you are a first-generation Christian, you have an opportunity to change your family tree, so to speak. Through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to set your family on a trajectory that, would, that is completely different from the generations before you. So I'll ask it like this, what would happen, what would it be like for your children, your grandchildren to not experience the same kind of family generational sins, sins that are passed down from one generation to another that, that you saw? Or to be shackled with, for example, that same kind of, of stupid, burdensome debt? Or how would we impact our community? If we taught our children the high calling of a homemaker, what would it look like for Redemption Bible Church to raise up a, a generation behind us to hold marriage in honor among all, who always see children as a blessing from God, who teach the Lord's commands and ordinances diligently to our own children? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look completely countercultural. We look nothing like the world. And I would say that in these ways, we, we have to have a pioneer spirit. We need to be trailblazers. Or maybe I should say, you are being those things. So today is Christmas Eve. We're going to look at a very specific family tree. And while we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ, the one who is the point of the family tree after all, I want you to see that God will use broken and even notorious sinners to accomplish His purposes. I want you to have hope. I want you to have hope for your families through the work of Jesus Christ. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is going to be a, a fun chapter to read, so bear with me. Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king." And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us today. Help us to understand your word. Help us to see that you are sovereign that Jesus Christ is the King. Father, help us to believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So many people skip over um, these lists of sometimes hard-to-pronounce names. But lists like this are a part of Scripture, and therefore they are profitable. And this particular list is actually a, a vital part of the gospel record. See, Matthew, in writing his gospel, he's writing to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of the people of Israel, and he is the, that he is the king of Israel who will usher in the kingdom of heaven. That's why he traces Jesus' line back to Abraham through King David. Whereas in Luke's gospel, the gospel according to Luke, Luke wrote to prove that Jesus is the redeemer of all who will trust in him. And so he traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam. But this genealogy here, this shows us that Jesus, first of all, is an actual part of history, that he really lived, and that all of the Old Testament, or really all of history, prepared the way for his birth. It shows us that the fullness of time had come. As Paul says to the Galatians, that God had sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so as we look at this passage this morning, um, we're not going to talk about every name on the list. Uh, There are a couple of reasons for this, but 
mostly because we know very little about a whole bunch of the people who are listed here. Maybe in some cases, all we know is their name. But for others on this list, we probably know a great deal. So, for example, Abraham, David, Ruth. You've probably heard those names before. Maybe you know a good deal about their story. I think the best way for us to look at this list of names is to ask the question, to not ask this question, to not say, what does this teach us about these people here? But what does this teach us about God? Especially when we, when we consider our own, our own families and, and the, the long-term work that we are doing to bring up our children in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord here at, at RBC, to pass on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does this list of names, what does this family tree teach us about a God who would send his only begotten son? I'll tell you, it teaches us at least three things. Let me give you those three now and then we'll break them up. That his providence is overruling. That his grace is overwhelming. And that his promises are overshadowing. Let's take them apart and begin with the the providence of God, the overruling providence of God. If you think about a definition of providence, um, the author Jerry Bridges, he defines providence as, quote, God's constant care for and his absolute rule over all of his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. His care for and absolute rule over all of his creation for his glory and the good of his people. God's purposes are often different than our expectations, right? We expect certain things in life. And when those things don't happen, or or worse, when something bad happens, we often have a tendency to cry out to God, why? Or, why me, Lord? Why us? And we cry out like that instead of trusting in His constant care and absolute rule over His creation. We often never get an answer, satisfactory answer to that question, why? If you remember in Job's story, when God finally answered Job, It was to say to him, essentially, where were you? Where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Remember, that was after Job had lost everything. Everything, including the lives of his children. See, God's purposes are often different than our expectations because he works for his own glory and for our good. In Isaiah chapter 55, we can see this kind of idea of God's overruling providence in in verses 6 to 9. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
See, when we deserve judgment, God provides mercy. When we deserve abandonment, God shows us grace. Those verses in Isaiah 55, they come right in the middle of Isaiah pointing out, the prophet of God pointing out Israel's sin, of recounting the the wickedness of the people of God. And yet in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, right before that, God promises to send a Messiah when the people deserve nothing but condemnation. And he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Because you you deserve death, he's saying to them. You have turned from me and my ways. The wages of sin is death. But then he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, here... Matthew chapter 1. It's fitting that Abraham starts this genealogy because Abraham himself was destined to be forgotten, just like his neighbors. But God's ways are not man's ways. Abraham was a descendant of of Noah's son Shem, and it it was from the Ur of the Chaldeans. If you want to be a nobody from nowhere, the name of that place should be Ur. You are. But when God called him in Genesis chapter 12, he was already living in a strange land. At the end of 11 tells us that. He was displaced. He was childless. And without God's intervention in his life, he would have died and been forgotten. His plan was no doubt like many of ours. His plan was make a little bit of money live a comfortable life, maybe even retire in comfort. But God had a different plan. Out of all of the people on the earth, out of everyone living at that time, God called Abraham. And unsolicited, Abraham did not ask God, God promised him land. He promised him a blessing and that he would be the father of a great nation. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was God's promise to, to Abraham that he would send, that he would send a redeemer, a, a Messiah, his Messiah, through, through whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And then a little while later, when Abraham saw that, that nature was taking its toll on him, on Sarah, his wife, leaving them childless, he asked, How can God remain faithful to his promise? We, we have no children. How can God remain faithful to his promise? And the Lord answered Abram in Genesis chapter 15 by saying this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God's overruling providence. It actually didn't stop with Abraham, who had, who had been destined to, uh, to die childless and forgotten if God had not stepped in. Because along with his wife Sarah, he tried to make God's promise of an heir come true on his own. And he had a son named Ishmael with Hagar, Sarah's servant. He tried to, to make God's promises to come true on his own. And despite that sinful act, God reiterates his promise, his covenant, and he gives Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. And it was Isaac, the child of God's provision, who was chosen to continue that line, that promise, giving hope to the, to the promise. It was to be Isaac and not Ishmael, who was the child of, of not God's provision, but man's provision. When Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands, God overruled them. And this overruling providence of God didn't stop with Isaac, who would father twins named Esau and Jacob. And Esau was the oldest. Esau should have been the heir to the throne, so to speak. But as you can see there in verse 2, it's Jacob who's named as carrying on the family name, continuing that line. Hebrews chapter 12 sheds a little light on Esau's character. Hebrews 12 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau was sorry for what he had done. It was in the moment, it was selfish, but in his sorrow, in his tears, he could not bring himself to repent. He could not bring himself to repent. God, in his overruling providence, rejected Esau. The world says Esau deserved the blessing. Our own sense of justice should say that, would say that Esau was ripped off by his brother Jacob, and yet God overrules. Paul explains the situation like this in Romans chapter 9. In fact, just turn over there if you... Romans 9, verses, beginning in verse 6. Apostle Paul writes, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he's quoting. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Because of God's overruling providence, he had mercy on the younger brother who stole the blessing. He allows Jacob's name to be included in the list of Jesus' ancestors because he will show mercy on whom he will show mercy, regardless of what we might think. And so here in Matthew chapter 1, the overruling providence of God continues to Jacob's 12 sons who will go on to, be, to, to father the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. But as you might have guessed by now, it does not continue to the firstborn of the 12, not to Reuben, not even to Joseph, who is a man of forgiveness and a godly man, whom God used Joseph to preserve his people in Egypt. Instead, in God's overruling providence, He chose Judah to preserve the line of the Messiah. Judah. Judah was a man who had impregnated his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking that she was just a random temple prostitute. But let's move on. Because in verse 3, Tamar gives birth to twins, Zerah, the firstborn, and Perez, and once again, in the overruling providence of God, the Lord directs the line of the Messiah to continue through the younger son, through Perez. Now, skip ahead here just a little bit as you look at all of these names, and notice that David, down in verse 6, now I don't know if you remember this, but David himself wasn't the firstborn. He was not the one uh, that Samuel thought as he was looking to anoint a king on God's behalf. He was not the one that Samuel thought should be king. In fact, he was the la- even, even David's own father didn't even bring him in for this. He left him out in the fields because it won't be him. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's overruling providence says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Again and again and again, in this genealogy, we see clearly God's divine sovereignty in directing human affairs to accomplish His purposes. That He might show His power in us, that His name might be proclaimed in all the earth. But again, God's overruling providence didn't even stop with David. 
David, the, the adulterer and murderer. God, in his grace, knowing what kind of sin David would commit, yet God still established a covenant with him, reiterated his promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your, own, uh, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this is a promise that God was going to keep. No, no matter how evil David's offspring in those days turned out to be. Now there are several of David's offspring listed here, and many of them were evil. Let me just, let me just note one of them. Verse 12 mentions a king by the name of Jeconiah. He's actually mentioned in 11 and 12. This man, Jeconiah, or Kaniah, he is sometimes called, he was actually the second to last king of Judah. He only reigned for three months and ten days, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God raised up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans they are sometimes called, who put his brother on the throne as a puppet king. Listen to what Jeremiah 22 has to say about this man. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to a couple of verses in Jeremiah chapter 22. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who, uh, of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man, who sh a man who shall not succeed in his ways, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God said that about that king. That's the kind of person he was. None of Jeconiah's physical descendants would ever again sit upon David's earthly throne. But the Lord promised, the Lord promised to raise up a new king who was not like the other kings. A king who remained the, the legal, God-given heir to the blessing. So how does this relate to us? Well, well all humanity is under the curse of sin. Adam lost the right or maybe the ability to rule the earth when he sinned. Paul summarizes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned but God. 
But God, in Romans 5, 19, for just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Consider this. The throne is cut off at Jeconiah. God says none of your sons are going to sit on the throne, but he had made a promise to David. Just a couple of verses later, in Jeremiah 23, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Even though Jeconiah sinned so grievously that God said, That's it. We're done. He was faithful to his promise. And he raised up another king. He promised right there another king who will reign in righteousness, whose name is the Lord is our righteousness. God's overruling providence, even in Matthew chapter 1, as we look at this list of names, this family tree, It presents Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. All of the promises of God find their yes in Him. Promises to Abraham, to David, to the heir, to David's throne. This is the overwhelming grace of God, which is the second thing this list of names teaches us here. The overwhelming grace of God. God's grace is overwhelming. I don't know if you noticed this or if you picked it up, but there are actually five women listed in this genealogy, which is actually highly unusual in Jewish culture. So, for example, when Matthew wrote this, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, and in their daily prayers, a good Pharisee would thank God that he was not a Gentile, that he was not a slave, and that he was not a woman. This was the religious climate that Matthew wrote in. And of the five women included here, four were most likely Gentiles, and all of them were under suspicion, either rightly or wrongly, of illicit sexual relationships. Sometimes that was a wrong suspicion, but they were under suspicion nonetheless. Tamar, in verse 3, She tricked her father-in-law into thinking that she was a prostitute after both of her husbands, Judah's sons, died because of their wickedness, leaving her childless. So she took matters into her own hands. Rahab, in verse 5, was a prostitute from Jericho who hid the Israelite spies who were scoping out the promised land. She even lied to protect these foreigners. Why did she do that? Listen to her own words from Joshua chapter 2. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. 
And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. She had heard. She had heard of the mighty works of God, the God of the Israelites, and she believed. And the Lord showed her mercy, not only in sparing her life and the life of her family, but in showing her the overwhelming grace by providing a Messiah through her family tree. Verse 6 Matthew mentions Bathsheba, although she isn't named. Instead, he calls her the wife of Uriah. This was a reminder. This was a reminder of David and hers adulterous affair that resulted in David, a man who is repeatedly called a man after God's own heart. It resulted in David orchestrating the death of her husband, and it resulted in the death of their love child. But God had covenanted with David that his son would sit on the throne. And in his overwhelming grace, he, ch he chose David and Bathsheba's next son, Solomon, to be in the line of Christ. And 2 Samuel 2.24 says that the Lord loved him. But if you go back to verse 5, you'll also see the name Ruth. She actually is probably the most controversial of them all. Not because she was particularly wicked. In fact, uh, compared to the others, she was pretty tame. It was her ancestry that was controversial. See, Ruth was from Moab. This was, a, this was scandalous because Moab means of the father. See, Moab was the son of an immoral relationship between Lot and one of his own daughters. Genesis 19 tells us the story. This legacy was known and it would have been thought of by every Jewish person whenever they heard the name Moab. And every Jew who ever met Ruth would have thought of this wicked legacy. But God, but God, because of his overwhelming grace, redeemed Ruth, gave her a son, gave her a son who would bring them another generation closer to the Messiah. When Matthew put together this genealogy, he actually left out some people, but he purposefully included these women. This was to show that the gospel of grace is greater than all our sin. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 says it like this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, even in our um, so-called tolerant society, the, these women specifically, they would not have been empowered, to use the word of the day. Why not? Because they kept their children. They kept these kids and loved them and raised them. 
The world is telling us that the only way for pregnant women to be empowered is through abortion. Even today, even today, these women would not have, they, they would have been taken advantage of. They would have been used and abused, and then they would be cast aside. But God, because of his overwhelming grace, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We need to see that all of this is the, is the overarching promise of God through the entire Scripture, the overarching promise of God. See, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way back at the beginning, all the way back in the garden, God promised that one day the offspring, the seed of the woman, the, the child of the woman would come and crush the head of the, dra- the serpent, the dragon. That God, that, that God would send an offspring who would crush the head of Satan, of sin, and of death. And this promise was brought to Abraham when God told him that through his offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then he extended the promise of it uh, through his son Isaac and, and, and then to his son Jacob and then to Judah. And Genesis 49 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. The promise was then extended to King David when he was promised that one of his offspring would sit on the throne forever. The promise extended through the prophet Isaiah to include the virgin birth. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us promise extended through Micah to include the little town of Bethlehem, the city of David. The promise of God reaches all through the Bible. Just just look at these three paragraphs here in Matthew 1. There's God's promise to Abraham. Then it begins with God's promise to David. And even in the third, the third paragraph there, the promise of the law in the, in the deportation, the exile, Listen to the promise of redemption. Promise of redemption from exile all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will uh, will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the, Lord, and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. This is a promise. This is a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
This is a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and it is seen in his church as the church gathers in the name of the Lord to worship him. It's a promise that we catch a glimpse of every Lord's day when the, when the saints gather in his name. And it is a promise that we will one day see face to face when he returns in glory. Until then, until then we rejoice. Because when those angels proclaimed peace on earth, and we look at the news and we think, not wherever CNN is, When they proclaimed peace on earth, that promise is as good as done because it's a promise of God. And until then, we eat and drink and so proclaim the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The promise is this today. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise for today. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Pray with me. Father, we rejoice that all of the promises of God find their yes in Him in Jesus Christ, that they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in these things, Lord. We are so grateful that we get to gather here on um, Christmas Eve as we anticipate the birth of our Savior that we know happened 2,000-some years ago, that Christ has come and we rejoice. We rejoice with the anticipation of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We rejoice in the anticipation of seeing our God and our Savior face to face. We rejoice in the anticipation of gathering with the saints in the throne room of our God to rejoice forever, to never again taste sin and death. Father, we rejoice this morning. I pray as we come to the table to proclaim the death of Christ until he returns that we would come with joy in our hearts. That we would come knowing that it is finished. That the payment for sin has been, has been made in Jesus' work on the cross. That, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise that is complete. Complete in Christ. And so Lord, we rejoice in these things. Father, we pray that for those in here who have not trusted in Christ, that they would believe, that they would search the scriptures and see if these things are true, that they would repent and believe, that you would give them life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.